Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Lepanto, Part 4 of 5. Last week I described the passing away of the Ottoman Sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, in September 1566, and his succession by his last surviving son, Selim II. If you haven't already, then I recommend you listen to parts 1 to 3. But if you want to continue anyway, or you already have listened to them, then let's begin. In comparison with his highly respected father, history has not been kind to Selim, who has been given the nickname of the Sot for his drinking habits. A Venetian ambassador left the following unfluttering description of Selim. Quote, he is 53 years of age, small in size and weak in health. This is due to his intemperance with women as with wine, drinking great quantities of the latter. Not only is he ignorant of the arts, but can barely recognise written letters. He is uncouth in his speech, unversed in state affairs and lazy, leaving all the great work of government to the Grand Vizier. End quote. Selim's reign began inauspiciously with a major mutiny by the Janissaries, the elite soldiers of his armed forces, whom he could only subdue by payment of a huge bribe. Selim faced a number of other challenges from the beginning. As soon as news of his father's death spread, there erupted a major rebellion among the Shia tribesmen of Yemen. At the same time, the Grand Duchy of Muscovy was pushing southwards, possibly opening the way towards an alliance with the Ottomans' greatest foe to the east, the Shah of Persia. One significant setback for the Ottomans was their failure in 1569 to eject a Muscovite garrison established on the Terek River in Astrakhan, and so to fail to halt Russian expansion. The Ottoman Grand Vizier urged Selim to invest in the construction of a canal across the Isthmus of Suez, linking the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. If this were feasible at the time and had been followed through, it could have changed the course of history. But Selim felt that to consolidate his position, what he most needed was a quick, dramatic military victory. The target chosen was the island of Cyprus. One problem with this plan was that Cyprus was ruled by the Venetians, who, ever anxious to maintain trade with the Ottoman Empire, had a current formal peace treaty with the Ottomans. It had always been considered illegal for a Muslim leader to be the first to break a peace treaty, including one with a Christian power. Nevertheless, where there is a will to find a reason for war, there's a way. Salim's lawyers were able to come up with legal justifications, based on the fact that the island had once been half-Muslim, and that in the previous century had been a tributary of the Mamluk sultans of Egypt, whose rights had been absorbed into the Ottoman Empire. As well as breaking ties with their old Venetian allies, the Ottomans had also recently angered the other significant Christian naval power in the eastern Mediterranean, Genoa, when they made a number of unprovoked attacks on their territories, especially the conquest of the island of Chios in the Aegean Sea. One advantage of the Turkish plan to invade Cyprus was that in late 1569 a great fire had raged through the arsenal of Venice, weakening their naval power. 
Also, the island was close to the mainland of Turkey, and so would not present the same logistical problems that Malta had done. Financially, Salim was able to fund the next military campaign by the confiscation of all church and monastic lands in the European provinces of his empire. On the 28th of March, 1570, an ultimatum was delivered to the Doge of Venice. Either the Venetians must surrender Cyprus, or the island would be taken by force. Despite realising how vulnerable the island was to attack, Venice made it quite clear they would not give way so easily. The reply expressed the Venetians' astonishment that Salim should wish to so flagrantly break his recent treaty, and their determination to do their utmost to defend their rightful property. Venice scouted around for help from their Christian allies, but with little success. Emperor Maximilian gave the excuse that his formal truce with the Ottomans still had eight years to run. The French, for their part, were preoccupied with civil war. The Knights of St John were able to offer five ships, but four of them were hijacked by the Turks soon after leaving Malta. The Pope was happy to provide a little help, but the only hope for substantial assistance lay with the King of Spain. Philip II offered a fleet of 50 ships. However, the support came reluctantly, as he was under immense financial pressures and could not afford the loss of more ships. As well as still recovering from the fiasco at the Battle of Jerba in 1560, Spanish resources were still being sucked into the struggle to maintain control over the Netherlands. The Spanish fleet was put under the command of Jean Andrea Doria, a great nephew of the Andrea Doria, who had so woefully failed to provide the Venetians adequate support of the naval Battle of Prevezza, 1538, as described in a previous podcast. Doria was provided by Philip with secret instructions to do his best to let the Venetians do all the fighting. The main priority was to make sure all ships were brought safely back home again. With these instructions, Doria was in no rush. In fact, his fleet sailed so slowly eastwards that it was September by the time he came near Cyprus. By that time, news arrived that the Cypriot stronghold of Nicosia had already fallen. The already unenthusiastic Doria used the fall of Nicosia as an excuse to argue that it was too late to help Cyprus. A council was held and the Spanish fleet returned home, having achieved absolutely nothing. The Allies' failure to relieve Nicosia brought recriminations from all sides. In particular, Doria was heavily criticised for his inaction. But the Venetians were also criticised for poor leadership and tactics and lack of military preparation. The separate defences were, on the whole, hopelessly inadequate for defending against the might of the Ottoman Empire. The walls of Nicosia were too thin to withstand the latest artillery. Kyrenia, in northern Cyprus, had once been a splendid fortress, but was now in a state of disrepair. Otherwise, the defences of all other Cypriot towns were pretty negligible. That is, with one great exception, one city on the east coast of the island by the name of Famagusta. The defenders of Nicosia had held out for as long as could be reasonably expected, before finally submitting on the 11th of September. Then, on the 15th of September, 1570, the Turkish cavalry appeared before the city walls of Famagusta. 
the Venetian defenders numbered about 8,500 men and were commanded by Marc Antonio Bragadin. The Ottoman army rallied against them comprised more than 200,000 men with 145 guns. During the winter of 1570-1571, a local commander in Crete, Marco Curini, decided to try and help the defenders of Famagusta. On realising that the Ottomans had left only a dozen vessels to support the siege, he decided that now was the best time to strike. On the 26th of January, with 12 galleys, he made a surprise attack on the Turks. He destroyed three of the enemy ships and one of their forts and helped reinforce the Famagustan defences with extra men, munitions and provisions, in so doing providing also a welcome boost to morale. With these reinforcements and plentiful supplies, Marc Antonio Bragadin felt confident he could hold out for several months until a bigger Christian relief force arrived in the spring. Over the next months, the defenders of Famagusta resisted bravely. The Turks dug trenches, pounded the walls of cannon fire and slowly advanced towards the city walls, all the while harassed by the defenders' sorties and returned fire. The attackers constructed a series of trenches, numerous enough to accommodate the whole army. They also built several siege towers, each new one closer to the city walls, from which they could fire downwards on the besieged and they had available the empire's best miners and sappers, who worked to bring down the fortifications from underneath. In mid-May, the Ottomans stepped up their artillery fire to try and force a breakthrough. Guns pounded the city walls relentlessly, firing 5,000 balls on one day alone. Parts of the wall were reduced to rubble, so Bragadin ordered work parties to shore up the defences, while his troops repulsed the attackers' attempt to gain access to the city. In June, the Turks simultaneously ignited half a dozen mines, at the same time as a particularly intense barrage of fire, although still the defenders refused to surrender. But as the days and weeks passed, hopes of a great Spanish or Venetian relief expedition were fading fast. On the 9th of July, simultaneous assaults were launched on all the weakest sections of the walls, and at one point it seemed as if the Turks would overrun the outer bastion. A Venetian officer took the decision to detonate an emergency mine, blowing up a hundred of his own men who were on the point of being overwhelmed by thousands of the enemy. Casualties were mounting fast on both sides. The defenders had been reduced from 8,000 to barely 500. They had virtually no gunpowder left, and after ten months of siege, they were running short of food. By the end of August, it was clear to Marc Antonio Bragadin that his men could not realistically hold out any longer, and so he asked to discuss terms of surrender. The Ottoman commander, Lalas Mustafa, perhaps surprisingly, agreed to reasonably generous peace terms. All Italians and those wishing to join them would be allowed to depart for Crete, while the native Greeks, who chose to stay behind, would be guaranteed their personal liberty. The document setting out the terms were signed personally by Lala Mustafa and sealed with the Sultan's seal. It was then returned to Bragadin and his fellow commanders with an additional letter complimenting them on their courage. When the two delegations met, at first Lala Mustafa received Bragadin and his men with every courtesy. 
Whether out of desire or out of anger at something said by Bragadin, the Ottoman commander, without warning, suddenly flew into a rage. He began to hurl a series of insults and accusations of the Christians standing before him. He ordered his troops to attack Bragadin and slice off his ears, after which the rest of the Venetian delegation were all killed. The heads of all those who had been murdered were piled in front of Lala Mustafa's pavilion. The worst fate of all was reserved to Marc Antonio Bragadin. He was dragged round the walls of Famagusta, with sacks of earth and stones on his back. Next he was hoisted onto the top of a Turkish flagship, and then taken to the main square, tied naked to a column, and flayed and then skinned alive. After he finally expired, his head was cut off, his body quartered, and his skin stuffed with straw, mounted on a cow and paraded through the streets. When Lala Mustafa returned to Constantinople, he took with him the heads of his victims and the skin of Bragadin to proudly present to the Sultan. Many years later, Bragadin's skin was recovered by his family and now lies beneath a memorial to him in the church of Santa Giovanni e Paolo in Venice. The motivations of Lala Mustafa have been much debated whether his actions were premeditated or did he simply lose his temper. Even some contemporary Turkish leaders were appalled, both by the flagrant breaking of treaty terms and also the brutality of the treatment of the Venetians. After the fall of Famagusta, Cyprus became an Ottoman province. In the years after the siege, some 30,000 Turks were moved from the mainland to settle on the island. At the same time, no Christian was permitted to live within the walls of Famagusta, in retribution for the defiance of its citizens. The Sultan, Salim II, in celebration of his victory, ordered the building of a new mosque. This, the so-called Selimiya Mosque, in the city of Edina, is considered the culminating masterpiece achieved by the great Ottoman architect Sinan. The failure of the Christian powers to defend Cyprus was humiliating, and at last prompted a serious attempt to form a coherent alliance. The prime mover for a new Christian league was the Pope, Pius V. Pius, who ascended to the papal throne in January 1566, was a genuinely inspiring and passionately committed Pope, instead of the usual Italian career diplomats from a noble family. It was standard practice for a Pope to call for the unity of Christendom against the infidels, but more often than not, their crusade would be distracted by Italian politics or the desire to gather funds to enrich their family members. Pious, in contrast, came from humble beginnings and kept a strict, ascetic lifestyle. When in March 1570, the Venetians sent an ambassador to Rome, writes Barnaby Rogerson, quote, he did not meet with the customary evasions and counter-requests. Instead, the Pope, who had no personal regard for money, opened wide the treasury of the papacy, and the Holy League was born, End quote. And so, on the 25th of May, 1571, in St Peter's in Rome, the new League was formally proclaimed. It was to be perpetual, offensive as well as defensive, and directed not only against the Ottoman Turks, but also against their fellow Muslims along the North African coast. Its first objective was to seek out the main Ottoman fleet, which led to the famous Battle of Lepanto, described in next week's concluding part of this series.
My name is Carl Weirat, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Kibato's podcast. It would be great if you could keep in touch. You could write to me directly to Carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. You can also join the Facebook page. Just look for History of Europe, Kibato's. Or the blog, which is www.historyeurope.net. I'd like to wish you Merry Christmas, have a good holiday, and a Happy New Year as well. For me, it's been a pretty busy year, but a good one, and I'm looking forward to 2019. So, I wish you all the best, and until next year, goodbye.